Best Book Bits podcast brings you Joe Fatale, author of far too many books, spiritual teacher, copywriter, and marketing guru, musician, radio, TV, and film star, plus being ranked one of the top 50 most inspirational speakers in the world. Joe, thanks for being on the show. Of course, been looking forward to this moment. No worries. Now, your bio is super long and expansive. Now, take us back to the, how your story unfolded. I want to know who the 18-year-old Joe is, what is he doing, and what is he dreaming about? 18-year-old. 18 years old, I was finishing high school and about to go into private pilot training at Kent State University. So I was uh, leaving high school and about to go into college. And the dream, I wanted to be an author. I wanted to be a published author. I wanted to write things that made people happy. I wasn't particularly happy. When I looked around, I didn't see people who were happy. And I thought, well, let me try my hand at writing things that might, you know, put a smile on people's face. Thereabouts was 18, as I remember. What was your your first job? My very first job, I was five years old. Yes, I said five years old. And my father took me to work with him, and I was a trackman on the railroad. A trackman on the railroad does physical labor. You hammer, you use pitchforks for what's called tamping, and you are carrying ties and heavy equipment. I was five years old and was it was a shock to my system. Uh, I ended up working on the railroad throughout my years of growing up, weekends, primarily summers, and even during the when I went to college and was bouncing around. So first job, when, hey, it was the railroad, and that was the job for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Your first book, uh, Zen and the Art of Writing, came out in 1984. Uh, what made you write that, and what was your experience in, in sort of writing your first book? It was 1984. 1984 is when Zen and the Art of Writing came out, and that was my very first book, and that was my desperate attempt to get published. I was trying all kind of ways to make money as a writer, and in my attempts, I was homeless, I was in poverty, and as I was struggling out of poverty, I was trying different things, like creating a correspondence course, taking an ad out in Writer's Digest magazine, saying I had a five Uh, lesson plan on how to write. And when that didn't work, I took the five lessons, compiled them into a book, called it Zen and the Art of Writing, and shopped it around. And you have to remember, back in 1984, there's no internet. When you shop things around, you're putting it in a manila envelope, sending it out into the world, then waiting six weeks to six months before you got your rejection, recover from the devastation of that, and go through the process again. So I put that correspondence course in the book form, put it in a package, started sending them to publishers, and I did find a very itsy-bitsy, tiny publisher who believed in the book and brought it out in 19, you know, as I say, 1984. Yeah, definitely pre-internet and uh, back in those days, I guess, um, very hard to sort of get into the the mainstream if you don't know if you're not that uh, good or you don't know who to uh, network with as well let's go back who was your early sort of mentors and teachers that you really learned from when you were starting out um, in this particular industry and and learning what you know now so who were your early mentors and teachers there's a long list because I have always sought the wisdom of those who went before me and were successful 
There was a time when I thought I was going to be one of the greatest magicians who ever lived. And I was inspired by Harry Houdini. And I reached for the for a magician who knew Houdini. Houdini was dead at that point. But in 1970, I wrote to the magician and asked for advice. And the magician wrote two pages back. His name was John Mulholland. He was legendary. He, of course, is gone. In fact, he died the next year. But he wrote me two pages of advice. When I wanted to be a heavyweight boxing champion, that was before I met uh, Mike Tyson and George Foreman and Floyd Patterson. And one of the things in my brain was, oh, I, I loved the boxing at the time and thought I could be a heavyweight boxing champion. Jack Dempsey, one of the early heavyweight champions, was still alive. I wrote to him. He wrote back. I still have the letter from John Mahal, and I still have the information and photo from Jack Dempsey. I have done this throughout my career. When I was thinking about being a writer, I wrote to E.B. White. And even then, he was an elderly man. He wrote me back a typewritten, run-on sentence giving me advice about being a, a writer. A real influence was Rod Serling. Rod Serling was the guy behind the Twilight Zone. He wrote two-thirds of those Twilight Zone scripts, and I got to meet him. And again, it was around 1970, 71, and it was a turning point because I realized he was human. I was thinking he was supernatural, that he was otherworldly, that he had godlike powers because I had seen him on TV, read his scripts, read the the fiction stories and thought, my God, this guy's a genius. Turned out he was a very insecure little man who had demons of his own because he had been in World War II and it haunted him till the day he died. And he died about a year after I met him. But I realized that if he can do it and he can be a success, then I had a shot. I had a shot at being a success as an author as well. So, my God, I can go through a long list of people from growing up throughout the struggle years to even today. I still learn from other people and get advice from those who've gone before me. So, Jack London, obviously I never met Jack London, but my God, he influenced me. His book, Martin Eden, which was a semi-autobiographical story of a struggling writer who ends as a suicide, I found mesmerizing. And I wanted to be Jack London. I wanted to write books like The Call of the Wild and Martin Eden. And I devoured everything from Jack London. Today I have autographed books by him. I have all of his letters. I've, you know, at this point, because I've gone on to some success, I can afford to indulge in these things. But early on, it was his, his writing and his life that was part of what spoke to me and advised me through demonstration on what to do. So, I mean, this is a subject we can talk about for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's important always to go back and, and find out who our early mentors and teachers were and, mm-hmm. you know, understanding that now where you're at in on the world stage, you're the people that you're training, educating and giving back as those people gave to you as well when you reached out to him. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that uh, story. What, what did you do after when the book came out? What was the sort of mid-80s uh, to the late 80s like? What were, you, what were you doing professionally? Suffering. Suffering, struggling, desperate. Uh, my book being published in 1984 was a blessing and a curse. It was a cause for celebration and it was a cause for devastation. And what I mean is 1984 
been struggling, went through homelessness, was still in poverty. And I have a book published. My dream has come true. My book is published. And then I realized nobody cares. Nobody cares. And the further shock was most publishers are just glorified printers, prestigious printers. They don't know how to market. That particular itsy-bitsy little publisher in 1984 was really a first-time baby publisher who had no real experience and didn't know how to market my book. And so I did something that actually changed my career. It changed my life. I learned marketing. I learned publicity. I learned uh, advertising. I learned copywriting. I learned all of it. I devoured it. I did what I've always done whenever I was interested in something. I went to the public library and devoured every single book, in print, out of print, interlibrary loan, the whole bit, everything to self-educate myself. And as a result, I started promoting my book and I started selling my book. And my own publisher wrote me a note, again, this is all before the internet, and said I was selling more copies of the book than the publishing house was. And word began to get out about my book, and people would ask me, how are you making your book sold? How are you getting attention? And I said, I'm just doing marketing. And people would ask me questions, and I would answer their questions. And then somebody else whispered to me, you know what you're doing is consulting. You can actually charge to tell other authors how to promote and market their books. So my book coming out in 84, yeah, it was a turning point. It was profoundly disappointing, and yet it was a celebration, and yet it's what triggered me to learn marketing, which is what I've applied to all of my books, my career, and everything that I've done, which has made me stand out. And was the uh, next book that came out in the the mid-'90s, was that Hypnotic Writing? Was that the second one? Hypnotic Writing was my very first ebook. The next book that came out in the 90s was either The Seven Lost Secrets of Success, which I think would have, would have been the next one, which I think was 92, or Turbocharger Writing, which was uh, 93, 94, somewhere in there. And then I started to get picked up by some nice publishers, the American Management Association, the American Marketing Association, and those were, I think, 94, 95 I wrote a book on P.T. Barnum, uh, There's a Customer Born Every Minute. I think that was 98. So going back, because I've, I've written a lot at this point, I would say um, The Seven Lost Secrets of Success was probably the next book, and that would have been around 92, so almost 10 years later. Yeah. Let's circle back to the uh, P.T. Barnum. So for those people who uh, don't know who he is, give us a bit of a story. Who is P.T. Barnum and what made you write a book about uh, his business secrets and life? Oh, I think everybody knows who Barnum is. If not, take one second and Google him. P.T. Barnum was one of the greatest circus promoters of all time. In the 1800s, he was doing what Walt Disney would do a couple centuries later. P.T. Barnum promoted eccentric things. He promoted Jumbo the Elephant. He promoted a little boy who would never grow, renamed him General Tom Thumb. P.T. Barnum was known for hyperbole, hoaxes, humbugs, but he was the great entertainer of the 1800s. And what I marveled at was his marketing genius. 
I had read his autobiography. I had seen an excerpt of it, and then I read the whole thing, Struggles and Triumphs. And the book's still in print, plus you can find old editions of it on eBay right now, so it's not hard to find. And I was absolutely fascinated. The man was charming. The man was clever. The man had story after story, but he really knew how to promote and publicize. Five days before he died, five days before he died, he said he owed his success to the newspapers of the world because the newspapers promoted everything he was doing. And of course, he fed the newspapers the stories that they ended up expanding on. And that that taught me. It taught me about publicity. It taught me about marketing. It taught me about advertising. It it taught me that if you don't do something to tell people about your book, nobody's going to know about your book. Not when there's two to 5,000 new books every week. So Barnum fascinated me so much that I did pretty much a year-long investigation of everything by and about him. I turned it into a massive research project. By then, I had a publisher who paid me to do it, and I'm still proud of the book. It's called There's a Customer Born Every Minute. There's a Customer Born Every Minute, and it's it's one of my proudest achievements because I so respected Barnum, and he was such an overwhelming character because he was he was a mayor. He was involved in politics. He was a speaker. He rebuilt his empire at one point because he had invested in a company that went bankrupt, and he rebuilt his empire by speaking. He was an author. Not only did he write his autobiography, he wrote children's stories. He wrote a lot, wrote a lot of his own news releases. He wrote other books. Um, I can just go on. Just a fascinating man who deeply inspired me, and I think I'm a bit of a disciple of him when it comes to promoting my books. Yeah, amazing. I think there's a movie on him as well, and uh, definitely an entertainer and uh, marketing genius. Um, I want to know, what what is hypnotic writing, and, and what does that mean to the average sort of punter out there? I don't know too much about hypnotic writing, so if you can expand on that. What is it, and why did you write a book about it? I invented hypnotic writing. As I was learning writing, I was also learning, how do I say this? As I was learning how to write books and articles, I was learning how to write from the nonfiction side of things. So I was learning how to write that was captivating. And at the same time, I had discovered, because of my 1984 book that was a failure, I had discovered copywriting. And copywriting is writing sales letters, writing um, advertisements, and it's writing to persuade, it's writing to sell. So I was learning about both of these, and I was deeply, as I do with most things, jumping into the deep end in both categories. So I'm learning about writing fiction, I'm learning about writing articles, I'm learning about writing traditional books, but I'm also learning about copywriting, sales writing, advertising writing, publicity writing. And along the way, I got fascinated with a couple key concepts. The first being, when writers write any sort of fiction, they are able to pull our emotions. They're able to make us laugh. They're able to make us cry. And I used to wonder how. They're using the same letters of the alphabet that we all have access to. They're using the same words that we all have access to in the dictionary. But somehow they're weaving them into a story that causes us to have an emotion. And that fascinated me. Even when I was mentioning Jack London earlier in his famous book, Martin Eden, at the end of it, the character commits suicide. And I felt it. 
I remember reading the book and rereading those last few paragraphs, and I was in the water with Martin Eden, and I was struggling to breathe with Martin Eden, and I was dying with Martin Eden. And part of me is like, how did Jack London do that? How did he write that? And then on the copywriting side, I'm looking at, these, these are writers sending a sales letter to a complete stranger, convincing them to give money. I'm like, how are you able to do that? And it was the combination of both of those that led to a concept that I ended up calling hypnotic writing. It is writing that is so engaging that you pretty much lose track of your surroundings. You're in what in hypnosis is actually called a waking trance. Your eyes are open, but you're focused on whatever it is you're reading. And I learned it from those traditional writers, whether it was Jack London, Shirley Jackson with her famous story, The the Lottery, or the copywriters like Robert Collier was a famous copywriter and John Caples. So looking at what they both did and how they did it, largely it was with stories and with characters you identified with. But I combined them saying you can intentionally do this if you're aware of the different techniques. And I wrote a whole book, which ended up being my first ebook called Hypnotic Writing, and I termed that ability of writing to captivate as hypnotic writing, putting people into a waking trance where they keep reading because their eyes are open, but they pretty much can't do anything else. <laughs> They're focused yeah, smart, on writing. Super smart, and the book's also called uh, Hypnotic Writing and Buying Trance as well, so not just writing, but you're writing it for people to buy as well. Right. Um, take me back to um, you know the Nightingale Conan and your audio program, The Power of Outrageous Marketing. Uh, what was that experience like, and oh, uh, what's that all about? That was huge. That was 1998. I, uh, how do I tell this story? I had wanted to be published by Nightingale Conant for 10 years. Nightingale Conant has, was at that time the largest self-help audio publisher in the world. And Vic Conant and uh, his partner Earl, oh my God, I forget his name right now. I can't think of his name, but the two put them together, Nightingale, Earl Nightingale and Vic Conant. They created Nightingale Conant and I wanted to be published by them. And when my book that I mentioned earlier, The Seven Lost Secrets of Success came out, I thought, oh, this is it. This is the one for them. They're into success. I have a book on success. I sent it to them. I wrote them letters and they rejected me. They rejected me. And I couldn't believe it. I was devastated. It's like, this is a no brainer. How could you reject me? They did. And they did repeatedly for years and then something unusual took place. By then, the Internet is around, and I was one of the pioneers on the Internet. One of my books in the 90s was on Internet marketing. It was called Cyber Writing. Cyber Writing. I think that was 95 or 96. And so somebody started emailing me questions about P.T. Barnum. They had seen my book on Barnum, knew I was fascinated with Barnum, and I answered all the questions about P.T. Barnum. I was just glad to do it. And after a series of emails going back and forth with this mysterious stranger, he finally said, thank you so much. I really appreciate how generous you were with your time and your knowledge. He said, by the way, I'm the vice president of marketing at Nightingale Conant. If you would ever like one of your programs considered for publication by us, just let me know. Well, that was, was a lightning strike in my life. I couldn't, but I still remember the moment. 
And of course, I wrote back to say, I've got several things Nightingale Conant should want. I said, my Barnum book, I had an audio program, I had the seven lost secrets of success, and I FedExed a box to my contact now at Nightingale. And he went to bat for me. He went to bat, and he ended up selling and getting me into their studios. And the very first program I did was called The Power of Outrageous Marketing. And that was still coming from my marketing background, everything I had learned to market my own books. I put in a marketing program, and that was my first. I've ended up doing almost a dozen programs and becoming one of the lead authors for Nightingale Conant. But it all began with a series of rejections and a synchronistic moment that redirected my life. It's nice to know that, you know, looking back, connecting the dots and knowing the amount of content that you put out before an opportunity like this came about. And yeah. without you putting through that effort and all that content out and going through those years of poverty, homelessness and, you know, rejection and becoming rejection proof and just keep keep doing you and keep writing and putting content out there that an opportunity came out like this and then you, you grabbed it and, and the rest is history. But what a lot of people don't know, I want you to take us back to how did you become a star in the hit movie The Secret? So take us back to how that came about and unfolded in the early uh, 2000s. Well, it's also a great story. Before we go there, I want to reiterate something you've just touched on. I was on, I do interviews every day, and there was one recently where they said, out of everything you've written and everything you've done and everything you've read and everything you've heard, what's the one thing that always works? What's the one thing that always works to bring success to you? And I was a little frustrated thinking, man, there's, you, know, you have to do it all. There's everything you have to do. There's lots of things you have to do. But they wanted one thing. So I took the challenge and I thought, oh, yeah, there is one thing. This one thing beats talent. It beats luck. It beats connections. It beats resources. It beats virtually anything else you can name. And what's the one thing? Persistence. Persistence. If you keep writing, if you keep attempting to be published, if you keep moving forward, over time, you will taste success. But you have to persist. I persisted when, my God, they're homeless. Persisted when I was in poverty. Persisted when there was not any evidence around me. Zero. None. That I would ever even be published. Nothing. You have to still keep going. If you really believe in yourself and the possibility of taking that chance that, you know, it could work out, then you have to get up every day and just keep walking forward. That's that is the big secret. So as for me being yeah. in the other secret, the famous secret movie, I. Well, again, this was in the 1990s, was getting a name for myself as a marketer, as a copywriter, as a publicist, as an early Internet marketer. And more people were taking notice of me and books like the ones for the American Management Association were going out there. My Nightingale Conant program was becoming a bestseller. People were noticing it. And there was a self-help teacher by the name of Bob Proctor who he just died a couple days ago. So it's kind of yeah. moving for me to talk about this. And it's a tribute to him. He uh, heard the power of outrageous marketing. He reached out to me and he invited me to attend his next seminar, which was in Denver. And so I flew to Denver as his guest. And I thought, well, I have to give him something uh, because he's giving me all of this. 
and making a big deal out of meeting me. And I had a little pamphlet called Spiritual Marketing, a little pamphlet. I had written it for my sister. It had a five-step formula in it that could help her get off welfare, which is what she was on at the time. And I had given it to her. It helped her get off welfare. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just give this little booklet to Bob as a gift. So I met him. I gave him the little booklet. Uh, it was a Kinko's thing. If you remember Kinko's back in the day, it was a print-on-demand uh, print kind of thing at the corner print shop, folded over, staples in it, very homemade publishing bakery kind of thing. Well, Bob read it. Bob loved it. Bob offered to publish it. He wanted to record it. He stood on stage in front of 300 people and said, Joe Vitale's in the audience. Nobody knew my name. He made me stand up and he said, Joe just wrote this book, Spiritual Marketing, and you're all going to want it. And they all did want it. And I didn't have it. I only had the copy. And there was a publisher there who said, I'll publish it. And I said, you haven't seen the book. You haven't read it. He said, Bob Proctor read it. Bob Proctor is ready to publish it himself. I'll publish it. I don't need to read it. Uh, wow. Okay. Things are happening. Uh, I agreed. The book was published. It became my first Amazon bestseller, mostly because Bob Proctor was telling everybody, mostly because the groundswell grassroots movement was burning and people were talking about a book they hadn't even read, Spiritual Marketing. Then the New York Times was doing stories on under-the-radar books and print-on-demand books, and they Talked about spiritual marketing, which made the book even more noteworthy and was grabbing attention and selling even more. Then a big publisher in New York called me up and said, hey, we heard you have this book called Spiritual Marketing. We'd like to um, uh, publish it, but we want to change the title. And so I had a, I own the book exclusively. I can get another publisher. And so I went with them. That publisher retitled the book The Attractor Factor. And the book, The Attractor Factor, is still my number one self-help bestseller out of the 80-some books I have out there. And a woman in Australia was given a copy of The Attractor Factor. She read it. She called me up. And she said, uh, I'm thinking about making a movie about the law of attraction. I read your book, The Attractor Factor. I'd like to have you in it. And at that point, I had never been in a movie. I'd barely been on TV promoting my P.T. Barnum book and talking about internet marketing. And I had also been getting phone calls from people who said they had dreams but never took any action. So I thought, well, I'll just be polite because I didn't think I'd ever hear from her again. And long story short, I did hear from her again. <laughs> and the little movie she wanted to make was called The Secret. And she applied marketing, and so did I, to that movie. And that movie, 16 years later, is still grabbing the world, still going around the planet, still awakening people, still teaching them about the law of attraction, still a treasure that I ended up being part of, largely because of Bob Proctor believing in me and announcing me to the, his audience. Yeah, so many things to unpack from that. Uh, obviously, first, Bob Proctor, yeah, yes. what amazing uh, gentleman, what amazing career, and, you know, died while working. Basically, absolutely. I, um, In his eighties, almost ninety years old, still going and still advertising on Instagram stories. You just yesterday, I seen it came up, and I was like, "Bob, aren't you dead?" And he was <laughs> like, "The Instagram story was was still going with marketing." So definitely a marketing genius. But yeah, what a what a great man, what a great book, and what a great story too. So um, thank you for sharing that uh, little story course, with Bob. Yeah, Rhonda from Australia. Now, do you know if the was it the movie that came out first or did, was it the book that came out first with the, the movie. secret? 
There was no book. When she first contacted me, uh, she had put together a two-minute trailer, and she said she did it in 10 minutes. And I saw the trailer, and I thought, oh, my God, if the movie is anywhere near as good as this trailer is, this movie's got to be history. It's got to make history. And the trailer was done in 10 minutes. It was very emotional. She used royalty-free images, royalty-free music. She had skills of editing, put it all together. Um, she interviewed me separately, but most of the people she interviewed were members at the time of the Transformational Leadership Council. And she went to where they were having a meeting and virtually interviewed every single person there. They were all thought leaders. And a dozen of them or so out of that group ended up in the movie, and I and others were included. So I know for a fact the movie was first. The book deal came after the movie was already out, already circulating, and already becoming a noteworthy success. Mm. Yeah, an amazing uh, movie. One thing I got from the movie that anyone can use, and one thing that really drove it home uh, for me, was the, the car park. You're in a shopping center, busy car park. And you don't think there's a, a car a car park space at the front of the doors. Right. I always, always know there's going to be a space for me. And it always works out. Nine times out of ten, I'll go to the front where the door is and there's a space there. Just, just magically appears. Now, call that luck, bullshit, whatever it is. But, hey, it works. The, those, little, those little things uh, absolutely work. And, I and just to touch on that too. I upgraded yeah. that challenge because I used to hear that. And I thought, boy, that's really small thinking, thinking about a parking place. And, of course, I did it, too. I would imagine having a parking place and then drive around and find it. And I thought, wouldn't it be better to actually manifest a car to park in the parking place? And then I began manifesting and attracting cars. In fact, I put up a website, attractanewcar.com. And I've had that thing up there for almost 15 years and people have been attracting cars and trucks and motorcycles and vans and all the different things. So I, I think attracting a parking place is a great way to convince yourself that this technique works. But once you've got the initial muscle going and initial belief going, now let's um, up the ante and, and create something that's a bit more of a challenge. Like, how about a car? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, the secrets, uh, I've done nearly 1,000 book summaries in video, written, and audio format on my channel, Best Book Bits. And the secret is number one. It is the number one most watched, viewed, uh, and read summary on my, my site. And it just gets popular and popular. <coughs> now, if you were to give me a sort of a, a one-minute summary for my audience listening, what is the secret and, and cutting the fluff out, what, what, do you th what do you put it down to? Talk about the law of attraction and why does it work. Um, yeah, give it, give us your take all on the law minute. of attraction, Joe. Uh, right, all in Oh, longer. Take your time. Take your time. Take well, the movie, time. The Secret itself, as well as the book, The Secret, its only job is to introduce a concept. And the concept it introduces is the law of attraction. The law of attraction in layman terms means that you are generally going to pull into your life what you are obsessed with the most. When you really look at what I just said, the definition of that, and then you look at how your own brain is operating, almost everybody is obsessed with worry. They're obsessed with stress. They're obsessed with fear. They're obsessed with what they're concerned about. And what do they get more of in their life? More things to worry about, to be doubtful about, to be afraid of. What the movie was designed to do, and what most of my work is designed to do, is to awaken us that we have a choice. 
the way the brain works is we will attract the strongest emotions. And the big strong emotions are love, hate, and fear. Most of us are focused on what we hate or on what we fear. Very rarely do we focus on what we love. So the movie is advising us, suggesting to us that it would be wiser and more practical to focus on what you would like to have and to do it with the passion of love because the more you do that, if you can visualize it and feel it, you will tend to attract it. And why does this work? I'm a very metaphysical guy, but I can also tear it down and put it into brain science terms. We all have a reticular activating system in our brain. The reticular activating system is already programmed to keep us alive. It's programmed for survival. And what it's doing without our conscious awareness is scanning our environment looking for threats. And this is one reason we pay attention to things that could be scary. That's why we're also in fear. It's like our reticular activating system is alerting us. Pay attention to this. It could hurt you. What we don't usually understand is that you can program the reticular activating system for something you would like to have, do, or be. And this is where it gets really juicy. Because now you can pick that new car, or you're looking for your soulmate, or the perfect job, or more wealth, or spiritual enlightenment. Fill in the blank. It can be anything. And now what you do is operate your own brain. You, have, you find an image of what you want because the brain responds to images. You pick the emotion you want to feel with it, which I would hope is love, and then you repeat this. These three steps is how you can use the secret to attract what you want with intent in your life so that you don't react to life. You end up creating or at least co-creating your life. That's a mouthful. Yeah, correct. I like it. There you yeah. go. I like how you uh, you put that into clear language, and it's it's very simple. I mean, Bob Proctor breaks it down really simple: is subconscious and conscious. Your subconscious is your driving force of life. Conscious is very very small, and you're just embedding things into your subconscious because that is the programming uh, of your life as well. But yeah, you've been in a total of fifteen movies so far. Some of them tried on everything: the Opus, which is amazing, the Leap, uh, Meta Secret, and your latest uh, title, The Abundance Factor, as well. Um, which is great. I, w- I want to go back. There's a I can't pronounce it, but the missing secret is called hope, hope and opo. What 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 is that exactly? The hill. Well, there are two different things there. When you said the missing secret, let's talk about that first. The missing secret, yep. I think, is my contribution to the whole self help movement because it revealed that what you're attracting into your life has more to do with a subconscious belief than with a conscious intent. So consciously, we can state an intention, and I love intentions. It redirects our lives. It helps us to go in a particular direction. But subconsciously, if we have what I call counter-intentions, they will slow us, stall us, or even stop us. Most people don't know anything about that. Bob Proctor hinted at it with the conscious and subconscious division, but I'm being, I think, a little bit more explicit because I say consciously you can say, I want to attract more money. Great. That's a wonderful tool. Money is needed. You have to pay your bills. So great. I intend to attract more money. But if subconsciously you think money's bad or money's evil or money corrupts or money will ruin me or I don't deserve money or there isn't enough money, all of those are limiting beliefs in the subconscious mind. And those beliefs in the subconscious mind will stop you from having more money. 
That's the missing secret. This is why, as much as I'm a fan of Napoleon Hill, I got signed Napoleon Hill books right behind me, Think and Grow Rich. I know millionaires who read it every year. I know people have read it 50-some times. When I first read it, I was broke. I read it in the public library in Dallas, laying on the floor. I was homeless. So I read Think and Grow Rich. I close the book and go, okay, I read Think and Grow Rich. How come I'm not rich? And it's because in the subconscious mind, I still had a lot of negative limiting beliefs about money, wealth, richness, deservingness, all of that. So the missing secret is we have to get clear of those subconscious beliefs before the conscious intentions can actually happen. The good news is once we do get clear, the conscious intentions happen almost by magic and they happen at an accelerated rate. So how do you get clear? There's lots of different ways. I've got a miracles coaching program. I have lots of books. I have lots of techniques. But what you were referring to is a Hawaiian spiritual system called Ho'oponopono. Don't have to remember it. Don't have to spell it. Don't have to say it. But it's Ho'oponopono. I often say it's the Ho-Ho method. And I wrote about it in my first book on the subject was Zero Limits. And Zero Limits, oh my God. There's almost a cult behind that book because people read it and they're just in awe. The book tells the true story of a therapist who helped heal an entire ward of mentally ill criminals by working on himself. And what he did to work on himself was this system called Ho'oponopono. In Ho'oponopono, you take complete responsibility for everything in your life. There's no get-out-of-jail card. There's no disclaimers. There's no blaming anybody else. There's no loopholes. It's all you. That's the good news and the bad news. It's the good news because, okay, the change is in your hands. If you're responsible for everything, all the change is on you. Bad news is all the change is on you. <laughs> in Ho'oponopono, though, there's four key phrases, and I'll tell people what they are. Four key phrases that you say within yourself to your connection to whatever your higher power is. An atheist can say nature. Somebody else will say God. Somebody else will say the divine. Somebody else will say Gaia. The great something. Joseph Campbell called it the great mystery. Whatever you want to call it. We are not in charge of the universe. We're part of the universe. So whatever that higher power is for you, you're saying these four phrases to it. And the four phrases are, I love you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you. I love you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, thank you. And these four phrases are said as a kind of prayer, as a kind of petition. It is a request to heal whatever your perception is. So when you are looking into the world and you see what you are calling a problem, it's a problem because you're the one calling it that. It is your perception. Ho'oponopono actually means in Hawaiian, Hawaiian to make right. And what you're making right is your perception. When the therapist was at the mental hospital for the criminally insane and helping to heal all those people, he wasn't working on them. He was working on him. As he looked at them, he's feeling rage, embarrassment, guilt. Those are the feelings that he wanted to clear. Those were his perceptions. He'd go inside himself. He's connecting to the great something. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. Repeatedly. Over time, patients who had to be shackled or sedated no longer have to be shackled or sedated. Patients who were pronounced as mentally ill criminals sentenced to the hospital were reviewed and being told, you're normal. You can go back into the world. 
This is a miraculous story, and I tell the whole story in the first book on Ho'oponopono called Zero Limits. And Zero Limits and Ho'oponopono is one of the ways to get clear. It's one of the ways to implement the missing secret. Yeah, really, thank you for unpacking that. And some of the notes I took was, uh, you know, love, sorry, forgive, thanks, really strong and, and powerful words. Mm-hmm. Also, the, the importance of one teacher can teach many, as we know, but one enlightened teacher can teach millions and, and, and teach many other teachers that come after him too. So that's the importance of self-work and, and you know, not only living your best life, but you know, empowering others with, with your power. And I think that's uh, the, the missing secret to life as well. So, yeah, thank you for all the work you've done and, and thank you for putting that together too. I want to sort of sidestep for a second and, and talk about your uh, musical career and uh, your did the first self-help CD <laughs> for a new genre of music called um, Healing Music. Talk to me about uh, your singing and songwriting as well. Well, when I turned 60, which was eight years ago, I looked around and thought, what's, what is on my bucket list? I had managed to accomplish quite a bit, but I wanted to look around and go, what's, what's undone? What haven't I touched? And I've always loved the music. I had a few guitars, um, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And I decided I want to record an album. I want to actually learn how to write a song. I want to put the band together. I want to learn how to sing. I want to learn how to play guitar. And I want to go in the studio when I want to make an album. That was my intent, age 60. And to be candid, here's the first thing that happened. Panic. Panic. It's like, I can't sing. I got no musical training. I don't know anything about going into the studio as a musician. I did as a speaker. Um, But how do you write songs? How do you play guitar? What if I suck? What if everybody hates it? What if this ruins my career? What if this is the worst decision of my entire life? So what did I do? I did what almost everybody does. I listened to all my self-talk. Most people would stop. Most people would give up. But I was 60. I'd already learned quite a bit about self-help, already been in the movie The Secret, already written all these books about how to attract miracles. In fact, one of my books is called The Miracle. And I thought, I can't give up. That's not what I teach. That's not who I am. I have to do this. And I did. And there's profound stories along the way. But as I sit here now, eight years from that moment, I have 15 albums out, six of them singer-songwriter albums. Some of my music has been used as soundtracks in movies. My band is called the Band of Legends. They all have incredible rock and roll experience. My drummer has the same name as me. He is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, along the way, also got to have private tutoring with Melissa Etheridge, who's a rock and roll legend who I've been a fan of for 20 years. And I cannot express to you how incredibly, uncannily, unbelievable it was to sit in her kitchen right beside her and then go in her studio and just her and I work on music. Nor can I tell you when she invited me to sing for her how overwhelmingly intimidating and yet what an incredible opportunity and yes I did sing for her Um, so many lessons so many stories and again it came from making a in a decision I stated an intention but also applying the missing secret to all those doubts this disbeliefs the limitations so I can get past them 
I've performed on stage as a singer-songwriter. I've performed on stage with my band of legends. Um, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Were you also in a horror movie named Cecilia as well? I was. That's my one credit as an actor. <laughs> Thank you for noting that. You did your research. Yes. In fact, it's interesting. The night I performed with my band of legends, it was a big deal for me because I hadn't been on stage with them. And there was a woman that came up afterwards to congratulate me. I got a standing ovation. This is, you know, I'm saying this because I want people to realize when you go for your dreams, there's all kind of perks that happen that would not happen if you didn't go for your dreams. And a woman came up and said she was uh, directing a movie. And there was a part for a monk. And she thought I might be good in it. And she said, have you ever acted? And I said, I was one of the three little pigs in first grade. <laughs> that was my acting experience. But I had also learned, this is another lesson of life, to say yes. You say yes and figure it out later. And so I said, no, I don't have acting experience except as a little pig when I was in the first grade or kindergarten, you know, 60 years ago. But I'm willing to try. If you'd like to bring me in the studio or whatever, whatever you need, I'm game. And I did. I went there and I acted. <laughs> And I, I got a short role in a movie, and I tasted blood. I want more. I'm waiting for Bruce Willis to call to say he wants me in the next Die Hard movie. <laughs> I'm sure it would come. Now you've <laughs> you've done so much, and you, you and you keep you keep writing and putting out books. Talk to me about your latest books. Uh, do you have them handy there to show us? And and what what are they all about? Well, I was once called the Book of the Month Club because I was coming out with new books virtually every month. So last month, I came out with Karmic Marketing, and Karmic Marketing has really been my secret to success. It's really based on giving. It's the idea that the more you give now, the more you will receive in unexpected ways later. And I've referred to it a couple times. There's a video from 10 years ago where I mention it, but I never wrote a book about it until just last month. Karmic Marketing. And then... Fresh off the press is a book called The Abundance Paradigm. And this really ties into where I'm at these days because I was talking about beliefs and how we can have limiting beliefs that stop us. And what most people do when they hear about the concept of limiting beliefs is they go on to hunt for them. And they find a limiting belief and then they'll wrestle it to the ground and they got to look for another limiting belief and then fight with that one and then look for another one. And all of that is great, but I'm always looking for the hack for the shortcut, for the, for the direct line to make the change. And the abundance paradigm is all about the concept of instead of changing one belief at a time, what if you change the entire mindset? Instead of believing in lack and limitation, which I certainly did when I was homeless and in poverty, I look out into the world and I didn't see abundance, I didn't see opportunity. But what if you can absolutely just kind of pivot the paradigm out and replace it with abundance thinking. So this whole book, The Abundance Paradigm, is around the idea of moving from the law of attraction to the law of creation. And <clears throat> it's the most uh, recent. I've, um, I wrote a book myself called Success in 50 Steps, and I've, I wrote it for 10 years, researched 13 years, 500 books, and I've got a chapter in there called Abundance, and I can tell you, writing that chapter, Abundance, was very hard because how do you put that into um, 
how do you expand on that so much? So I'm, I'm impressed <coughs> that you actually wrote a book about abundance because it took me a hell of a lot of time to write one small chapter on abundance. So <laughs> but thank you for that. But yeah, it, it is all about your paradigm and looking at life through the glasses of abundance instead of scarcity. Right. We live on the most abundant we live in the most abundant time uh, in terms of what we have at the tip of our fingers. We're talking over the internet, looks like we're in the same room, like how abundant is the world now? And then there's obviously people on the other ledger where they're living in scarcity, living in fear, doom and gloom. it's the end of the world, it's the global reset. Um, what are some tips or tricks you can give people to sort of switch their paradigm to start thinking about abundance living. I'm glad you brought that up because the easiest way to look at this is the following. Life is an optical illusion. Life is an optical illusion. You will get whatever you believe. You just pointed out, for example, that some people look out into the world and they're going to see scarcity. And if they see scarcity, all they have to do is go to the library Go to Google, do some research, and they will find all the evidence supporting scarcity. It's there. And it'll be very convincing. It'll even be overwhelming. It'll be an abundance, ironically, of information supporting scarcity. By the same token, if there's somebody who believes in abundance and prosperity, they'll do the very same thing. They'll go do the research, they'll go to the library, they'll go to Google, they'll type in all the words, and they will come back with books, with studies, with evidence proving abundance is the way of our life and where we're going, which is true. They both are. They both are. Depends on what you choose. If you want to believe in scarcity and struggle and lack of limitation, no shortage of evidence, no shortage of supporters for that way of believing. If, however, you want to step aside from that abundance paradigm, walk away, and you want to come from abundance, you can find the people who believe it, the supporters of it, the evidence for it, the books for it, the recent scientific studies conclusively proving it, and there's your backing. So for me, I highlight the choice. I highlight the choice. As people are watching right now, they might have a tendency to think in a certain way only because it's been habitual. They've been doing it that way. But right now is the interruption. Right now, between you and me in this moment, where we've introduced a concept that I'm hoping people will stop and reflect on. And if they chew on it just a little bit, then they can ask themselves, well, if it's really a choice, do I really want to keep going in scarcity? If I could choose abundance? And that's where the life can change forever in that moment, this moment. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I put it down to this tool. There's two tools people walk around with. One is either a microscope where they're constantly just looking through the microscope of the smallest little things. And, you know, under a microscope, the smallest things look large. But people should be walking around with a telescope and focusing on the future and the importance of focusing further out. <clears throat> and, yeah, so the, the, the telescope versus the microscope, uh, I've just made it up. It makes sense <laughs> to me. But, yeah, that, that's a way of looking at the abundance of the world. You know, telescope out to the stars, the moon, and realize that we have everything we need, where people walk around with a microscope and they don't realize the abundance that we have in nature. Step out in nature. Yeah. Go camping. I went camping on the weekend. haven't done that for a while. And just the sheer brilliance of the forest. 
I mean, how abundant do we live in a, in a world where, you know, the forest doesn't need anything. The trees don't need anything from us, but they grow 150 meter trees, massive. And I was like, wow, these don't need anything from us. How abundant do we live in? And they're oxygen, oxygen, ox, you know, providing this oxygen. And right. it's, yeah, such an abundant planet we live on. So just <laughs> the, the law of perspective, those two tools. What do you think of that, Joe? The microscope and the telescope. Does that make sense? Oh, it absolutely does make sense. Um, I would just agree with you. I think the, from a spiritual standpoint, what I would be wanting to focus on is the moment. Being in this moment, however we get there, the microscope or the telescope, being in this moment, because this moment is the miracle. I mentioned I wrote a book called The Miracle. In essence, I'm saying the past is gone, doesn't exist, except in your mind. Future isn't here, doesn't exist, except what your expectations are. The only thing that's real and the real power is in this moment. Most of us are not in this moment because we're living from the memories or we're living in our expectations. But if we can bring it down using a telescope, microscope, whatever you want to use, by bringing it right here, this is the miracle right now. Yeah. Yeah, the now is uh, always there. So uh, just a couple other quick, quick questions before we sort of wrap up as well. Um, now, this one's a good one. If you were to host a dinner party with three people, dead or alive, from the future, who would they be? Where would you take them or what would you serve them? So three people from the past, dead or alive. From the past, dead or alive. Well, P.T. Barnum would definitely be on my list. My God, I'd love to sit and chat with P.T. Barnum. Uh, I would put Buddha on the list. I don't know that I'd be able to understand what he had to say, but uh, we're going to put Buddha there. And, you know, it just comes to mind. I didn't think I would say this, but I would put Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor and the, and the poster boy for Stoicism. I would have uh, Marcus Aurelius, Buddha, and, and P.T. Barnum. What a trio that would be. A circus promoter, a spiritual teacher, you... and a Roman emperor. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a great conversation. <laughs> now, would you take him out for tea or would you have him, would you have him at your place? Oh, I, well, assuming a pandemic is still on, I would probably just have him come on over here and I'd, I'd cook them something. P.T. Barnum doesn't drink. Marcus Aurelius would drink wine. Buddha probably would drink wine and it wouldn't affect him. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, awesome, awesome. Now, and Joe, where can people sort of find you online or what's the best place they can reach you? Is it the website, Mr. Fire, or what's the uh, best place people can purchase your products? Yeah, well, thank you. All of the books are on Amazon. Music is on iTunes and Apple. I have a brand new TV show, an online TV show. It's Zero Limits Living. And if you go to ZeroLimitsLivingTV.com, you can find out all about it, ZeroLimitsLivingTV.com. I think the Mr. Fireside's probably fine for people to go and find me. I'm on Facebook as Dr. Joe Vitale. Instagram is Dr. Joe Vitale, D-R Joe Vitale. Um, I'm not hiding, so a little bit of searching and people will turn me up. Perfect. Joe, thank you for being a, a fantastic guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. And yeah, we wish you uh, many more healthy years and a lot more uh, books uh, coming our way as well. Yeah. So thank you for all the work you've done over the decades. Uh, you've been a blessing. Um, have a great day. And yeah, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. I'm flattered and honored. Godspeed to all your viewers. No worries. Thank you, Joe. I'll speak to you soon. Okay.